Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Some Other Sphere. If you enjoy it, please leave a rating on your preferred podcast platform or like and share it on social media, as it all really helps to promote the show. If you'd like to support the upkeep of the podcast as well, you can donate via Ko-fi. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash some other sphere podcast to find out more. Thank you again, and now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. Joining me for this episode of the podcast is previous guest and good friend of the show, Matt Hopewell, aka AP Strange. AP is a paranormal researcher, writer, and self-described Discordian flying sorcerer enthusiast, certified kook, donut wizard, and master of mystical flapdoodle. He has a distinctly fun and light-hearted method of exploring Fortiana on his blog, AP Strange's Weird Writings with articles on an impressively varied array of unusual subjects. In the interview, I talk with him about his approach to researching the paranormal and how helpful a sense of humour can be when doing that. Our conversation is a wide-ranging one, covering cryptids, poltergeists, UFOs, ancient Greece, the ideas of Robert Anton Wilson, and much more. It's always a lot of fun to have AP as a guest and this time was no different. Enjoy! AP, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Rick. Thanks for having me. I think this is, this is the third time. or no pro- Oh, wait, no, it's the fourth time. I've been on three times already. So I know it's been too long since you were last on, so apologies for that. <laughs> Congratulations on over 100 episodes now. It's great to be back, and it's great to see you doing so well. Ah, thank you. Yeah, um, that milestone seemed a long way off, so it's weird to get there. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> cool. So in this episode, I thought we could just have a, sort of a relatively freeform chat about the paranormal, really, and and how to approach those sort of subjects in a positive way. You do a really great job of that on your blog, and and how you talk about this sort of stuff on social media as well. Well, yeah, I mean, I really appreciate that. And uh, I'm glad that it resonates with people because I think uh, it doesn't always. And I I don't suppose that the way I approach things or talk about things is really for everybody. (laughs) Um, Some people like to have the straightforward answers for things. And uh, I think if nothing else, I like to encourage people to just think a little differently or think outside the box about some of these uh, odd phenomena that happen in the world and, um, you know, possibly come to realizations about themselves and and basically how reality works in general. Yeah, and I think you have a, a lighthearted approach as well. That's something that comes across in your writing. The subject matter is really interesting, but the sort of the connections that you draw are that you don't seem to take an overly serious tone. Well, I don't think you really should. I mean, <laughs> the world is uh, the world is pretty outstandingly crazy. 
um, you know, and, and things and any particular thing that you look at becomes increasingly absurd, the more you look at it. Um, and I mean, that ranges from the very mundane to, uh, to the very fantastical. Um, so I think having a sense of humor is a form of psychic armor against these things. Um, I was turned on to this idea reading about Doc Shields, who was a um, self-proclaimed wizard who said that he conjured the Loch Ness Monster and took a picture of her and <laughs> all sorts of other things, colorful character. But um, in reference to the psychic fatigue that was reported after the exorcism of Loch Ness by Doc, uh, by uh, F.W. Holliday and uh, Reverend Omond, uh, Shales was kind of talking about how having a sense of humor about it kind of insulates you from that. It kind of protects you from that a bit. Um, uh, and that kind of inspired me way back when I first read about it. Um, and, and I think having a lighthearted approach and understanding these things, it's, um, meeting the, the tricksterish nature of the phenomena halfway at the very least. So, um, that way there, the phenomena that you encounter kind of responds in kind with the form of emotive energy that you're putting towards it. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned a sense of humor as a form of psychic armor. I'm sure I've read in some books that, um, you know, it's important to end some magical rituals with a banishing and and laughter can be used for that. Like it's, it's so it's interesting you, you mentioned that there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a <laughs> slowly building towards a whole thesis of... Um, of of humor as an occult device you know so uh <laughs> it's been a long-running project of mine but i think the humor is very important um uh you know i do i i, I do increasingly silly things these days and i'm and i'm becoming more and more comfortable doing that and sharing it widely with people and uh it's amazing how better how much better the results are when you're allowed to let go of some of those inhibitions and allow yourself to be a bit sillier, you know? Hmm. Do, do you have an example of that you could share? Oh, um, very recently, uh, a while back I was on, on, um, Rob Christopherson's our strange skies podcast talking about Sam, the sand down clown, but we also talked about the phantom clowns in the 1980s and uh they first popped up in boston which is not that far from me and i'm kind of more acquainted with the area now so i did a um went on a mission to seek out the clown portal in uh, <laughs> in uh, franklin park in uh uh in the neighborhood of boston i, th I think it's in dorchester uh, i'm trying to or jamaica plain but it's around that area of boston and um my, my plan was to seek out the close, clown portal and close it once and for all. And it was just kind of like a silly little adventure. You know, it involved me going into Boston, um, going to a costume shop and getting myself a new clown nose to wear, um, purchasing a rubber chicken, and then uh, going to the Jewish deli nearby to fortify myself with uh, brined fish and onions before <laughs> before heading to the park and uh, performing a, a 
a magical banishing ritual to close the portal using the rubber chicken. Um, and I mean, <laughs> I could justify a lot of this with, with legitimate occult devices, you know, um, a lot of, a lot of, uh, quote unquote, low magic would have you sacrifice a chicken. And in my, my case, I'm, I'm doing a, uh, obverse of that by acquiring a chicken that was never alive to begin with. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. It was a silly little adventure. It was a bit of legend, legend tripping. It was a little bit of, uh, um, you know, self mythologizing and, uh, and in a lot of ways it was real magic. You know, I inspired some laughs from people in the park that saw me walking through with a clown nose and a rubber chicken. Um, <laughs> and, uh, if, if you can put that kind of energy out into the world and try to, try to, um, engender a sense of wonder because wonder more than humor is the most important part, I believe of looking into this stuff, uh, curiosity and wonder, you know? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I know that, I mean, I haven't done anything quite like that but I do know that the times when I've just set myself a target of of going somewhere and sometimes it would end up I won't have a map but I sort of know the general direction of it it feels like more of an adventure you feel like you're you're more part of something so I, I understand that aspect of it well a lot of occult ritual is embodying that which you're trying to manifest right in a ritual setting there's you know, uh, you think of high magic, especially the way it's portrayed in pop culture with uh, robes and ritual and uh, pretense and all this other stuff. Uh, a, a great deal of us would feel very silly actually doing that, especially if you didn't have a group of like-minded individuals and you were trying to do it by yourself somewhere. I, I know that's something I've struggled with in my life is feeling very silly for doing something, even if nobody's around. You know, <laughs> And uh that, that's that's part of it is that is letting go of that inhibition is very freeing and it, it makes you come into your own power in a lot of ways yeah and i i suppose just having an interest in the paranormal is something that other people could see as being silly and embracing the silliness of it is very helpful i find like i when i when i think back to how my interest in this stuff has developed i, I mean when I was watching the X-Files in the early 90s and reading magazines around that time, I, I, would, I think I was probably very much of the mindset that, that UFOs were craft that came from other parts of space and Bigfoot was a flesh and blood creature and so was the, the Nessie and other lake creatures. But now it's, I'm pretty much at the other end of the spectrum in terms of my appreciation of, of those sorts of phenomena and, and the need to... to categorize them and identify them yeah and um it's the kind of thing where having an interest in that in the 90s or uh you know even still now at various points in history if you were a ufo enthusiast you had to be careful who you brought it up around right like <laughs> some people would write you off as a complete nut and i and you <laughs> see that happen with a lot of people that have been involved in ufo research actually lose their jobs or it uh, becomes disruptive to their home life uh because um uh people think they're crazy you know and, and you almost have to compartmentalize your life where you have a secret life of 
reading, uh, you know, 14 times on your lunch break and then hiding it when your coworkers come in or something. <laughs> so you don't get questioned about it. Uh, but, um, yeah. And, and I mean, what you allude to there with the nuts and bolts craft idea and, uh, uh, inhabitants of another world tra transversing space to get here or um, Bigfoot being a flesh and blood creature that we just haven't found yet. Uh, and people get very stuck on this. And uh, I don't, I'm not opposed to that really. What I'm opposed to is uh, the idea, especially among those in the quote unquote disclosure movement that take themselves very seriously as uh, activists to a cause that have this insistence that we need this stuff normalized to the point where people will take it seriously. Um, and I think that's anathema to the equation of the unexplained, <laughs> honestly, like and not just UFOs, but any unexplained phenomena. And I think they overlap and tie together, but um, being taken seriously doesn't really seem like it's on the table. And I'm okay with that. You know, that's the, the other part is I'm okay with it not being taken seriously. Yeah, absolutely. I think as well, the the idea that the nuts and bolts craft is is still a really interesting one, but it's it feels like something that would be best served, at, at least in sort of public forums, as a bit of a thought experiment, rather than trying to just come down on something and say, this is exactly what it is. Well, have a bit of a thought experiment and about it and that way you you probably have a better chance of coming down on something that be, would be nuts and bolts with that area of ufology i'm always wondering well why would they come to earth There's, there are so many questions that you could ask about the nature of these beings as to why they have an interest in us it's, if there is a similarity that in itself just opens up more questions it sure does. And I mean, even as a kid, um, re get reading about this stuff, UFOs were never really my main interest. Mm. Um, it's something I built an appreciation for over time. And um, I think when I was younger, the monsters and the ghosts were a lot more interesting to me. Um, and I found, well, you know, during the 90s, you had the X-Files, which I absolutely loved. But what I didn't love about the X-Files was the story arc episodes. You know, mm. you had your monster of the week and then you had your story arc. And um, the story arc could get really tedious. And especially back then where you didn't have things on demand where you could stream them. Uh, if you missed an episode, you were kind of in the dark about it. <laughs> and uh, it, it, um, it, it was difficult to piece together. But moreover, it was kind of dreary and... Um, and not nearly as fun as a monster of the week, you know, um, at the same time, you had a lot of talk about Roswell in the nineties, um, like MJ 12 documents were still a big thing in relation to that. And there was a lot of like government document, hard proof, uh, the government is hiding stuff tied into conspiracy theories and, uh, everything else. Um, whereas from my perspective, it made a lot less sense that UFOs would be physical craft from another planet coming here. Um, even as a kid, that never added up in my mind. I found it 
way more compelling to think that they were coming from someplace on this planet. Yeah, absolutely. The number of problems I had were mostly based on my scientific understanding of, of how physics works and how, <laughs> how reality works in the sense that, okay, a, a lot of crafts are seen coming out of the water, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, what's the opposite of underwater? Outer space. Like a craft designed to do both is inconceivable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're talking about thousands and thousands of pounds of pressure per square inch on the outside of the hull versus the vacuum of space. Um, that <laughs> they're polar opposites from each other, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then the distance between here and any habitable planet is so far that it would require some type of um, Einstein Rosen bridge to get from one place to another uh, in any kind of timely fashion, which if you can do that, then you, then anything's on the table, like traveling to other dimensions or going back in time. Like, <laughs> uh, so, so it, it seems like a non-starter to me to have a physical craft come from a far off planet. Um, because at that point you're talking about almost godlike powers over, uh, space and time. Yeah. It would be weird that you would have that level of power and then you'd all get in a in a craft and fly to the <laughs> yeah just to spook a few earthlings <laughs> yeah. i mean maybe i mean i mean that is a funny idea going back to what we were talking about about humor but but yeah it just like you put it really well there it just it, it just doesn't really make sense as a, a practical explanation for for what's happening but I, I definitely agree with you about it being more interesting as well perhaps these things being from earth from under the sea yeah i mean that makes a lot more sense to me um one of the most appealing books that explores some of these ideas as a thought experiment to me is uh, mac tony's the crypto terrestrials yeah i got that it's, it's really good yeah it's a fantastic book it's very short and very engaging um you can read it in an afternoon and it has some of the most insightful ideas about UFOs and their occupants that any book ever has had. You know? Yeah, I mean, who's to say what what has happened in Earth's past? It, human history keeps getting put back thousands of years every year. We're finding more and more evidence of humanity um, being involved in complex practices thousands and thousands of years earlier than had previously been thought and you know these things if they are from earth the the occupants probably aren't even human yeah or they could be they could be an earlier form of human (laughs) yeah or um but uh but i don't know like speculating about the uh hows and whys uh, the wilder the speculation is the better i think and um, uh, because you need a broad range of, of, of thought experiments to, to work with. Um, but I mean, I run into this problem frequently because I don't think it ever normally occurs to me how different my approach to it is than your average person, because I can tell a story or talk about something I've researched deeply. And then... Um, Somebody will ask me, well, what do you think happened? What do you think the answer is? And I'm like, the answer? I'm like, the story is the answer. 
Mm. <laughs> it never even occurred to me to come up with uh, an explanation for the events because it's uh, who can say <laughs> there, there really is none. It's this is the story and the story is the answer because um, stories have a lot of power and stories are what we build our, our worldview on. Um, stories are formative to every person and what they believe and how they act in the world. Um, stories are ultimately more important than the facts because the facts are generally inaccessible. We All we have is our best guesses. Yeah. I think you'd hit the nail on the head there. Some, something I've thought about a lot too is the, is the value and the, the power of stories to human culture. It, it really does seem like when you immerse yourself in this stuff, especially when it's an, an incredible case, that's what it is, isn't it? That's, that's it's sort of the power that it has is as a story. That's the sort of, sort of the, the value you get from it. That that's how it leaves an impression on you, those, those events. Because like you say, a lot of them will have happened long ago. The people who are involved in them often aren't alive anymore. And, and even when it's outlandish, like a lot of people will say, well, I'm not sure that stuff happened, but it's a great story. And therein is the key, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it has to do a lot with, um, the effect, the effect it has on you. And, and I find that all of this stuff is very deeply personal from the standpoint of experiencing phenomena to reading about it, to investigating it. So much of it is very, very personal um, and informs your own personal beliefs. So, um, I mean, uh, I think that the emotive value of it is is much more important than than anything else. Um, I like to think of it in the in, in the sense that you know, when I was when I was a kid flipping through the pages of a book about the unexplained, I might find a picture of the surgeon's photo of the Loch Ness monster, or um, or the Flatwoods monster, the sketch of the Flatwoods monster with the man standing next to it for scale, and these things would make me happy and curious and have the sense of wonder about it, where I needed to know more, and. Um, whether or not it was real never crossed my mind. It was just a wonderful image. You know, that image would tell me that there's more to heaven and earth than we even are capable of conceiving of, (laughs) you know? And I I think that, that, you know, people associate it with childhood because most people abandon it post-childhood, but you, you don't necessarily need to. It's a sense of wonder that sense of curiosity and um, to me, excitement, it's, it's genuine excitement of, of uh, uh, discovery. Yeah. And you're, you're right about the flatwood monster. I think it's such an iconic image. It's a, and it's a motif of that era of the, of ufology, I think. Yeah. The flatwoods and the Kentucky goblins, um, that one, that one hit home with me as a kid. <laughs> I mean, I know a lot of people get scared when they, they have uh, images that scared them as a kid when they would read about this stuff. And for me, it was always just like glee, like the same kind of glee that you'd get from 
watching a Godzilla movie or <laughs> um, or like a universal monster movie or something like that, where it's just cool. It's cool and fun, you know? Yeah, I mean, it definitely stays with you. I remember over here in the UK, we had these books. They were by a publisher called Osborne, and they were ones on ghosts and UFOs and myths and legends. And there was one, I think it was the ghost one, that had a piece in it about Jeff the Mongoose. But it was just a picture of these claws coming through the ceiling. And I remember I remember being terrified by that picture, actually. Um <laughs> But but Jeff the Mongoose always stuck with me. He might be the earliest fourteen thing I can remember. So yeah, I, but that's an equally weird case to to the ones we've just been talking about in in America. Oh yeah, it's uh, it's among the weirdest, <laughs> and I and I, and I love it. I, I tend to think that the most absurd, fantastical, and hard to believe ones hold some form of a key to understanding the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you read Chris Joseph's book, which is really good, pretty much the definitive book on the on what happened, you, the part of you that's sort of the detective does start to put together the the facts. And even if Jeff wasn't a classic supernatural entity, he was something born of that situation. And that's still just as weird as if he had been sort of a classic spirit, I think. That's that's something that I think I've come to learn is that weirdness can come from anywhere and it doesn't need to be this sort of classic idea of, of what a supernatural entity might be. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, the idea of the supernatural entity is um, <laughs> is more powerful than, than anything it could do physically, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um. When you speak of Jeff, it's like I I was I decided to um, use newspapers dot com to look up old articles about Jeff at one point, and I found one um, trying to remember what exactly happened here. But it was it was like somebody on the BBC uh, got in hot water because they talked about the case. <laughs> <laughs> Where it was just considered, you know, um, it was it was considered so unbe- unbelievable they they actually got in trouble for talking about Jeff the mongoose because um, it was an embarrassment to the news program that he was on or something like that. <laughs> and it's almost like that's Jeff. Jeff is still you know weaseling around and uh, making trouble for people, even though it was years later and it was. Uh, the the concept of him was still causing trouble even if if he wasn't physically there to throw bricks or um (laughs) or uh spread gossip you know yeah absolutely so i mean with writing your blog how do you decide what to write about it always seems like you find something that's interesting and weird do you have an idea in ahead of time what you want to find or do you just do your research and find something that you feel is worth writing about? Uh, Well, I'm constantly finding really weird things and coming up with really weird angles to, (laughs) with which to write about them. And um, I might have an idea that just stays in my head for over a year. You know, that happens sometimes where something will occur to me and I'll just kind of slowly accumulate data. And then one day I'll have a whole idea 
uh, mapped out about how I, how I would approach it. And um, generally, I'm just jotting down notes in a little notebook that I have and um, piecing it together. Uh, but I mean, I like I, I like when I uh, usually it'll it'll stem from one sentence and something that I was reading. Um, I bought on a whim an old magazine. I think it's called Fantastic Universe, something like that. Um, it had an article by Isabel Davis about the contactees. And uh, reading it, I was um, struck by one line in her her assessment of uh, George Hunt Williamson, the contactee. Uh, and she makes reference to a part of the book, um, The Saucers Speak, where he references being directed to do something, uh, directed to a Bugs Bunny cartoon for information. <laughs> And she just mentions this in passing. And I'm like, wait a minute, what? So now I had to go find a copy of that book and buy it. And I, I'm digging in. And all I want to know about is what does Bugs Bunny have to do with UFOs? <laughs> and I mean, it's among one of my favorite things that I've ever written is on the blog. It's the Bugs Bunny UFO connection. So um, I, I got to the bottom of it. I figured it all out. And it's just, it, it, it's an outstandingly strange story. And um, the the only conclusion one can come to post looking into it that hard is that uh, Bugs Bunny as an idea or as a character exists in reality as much as he does as a cartoon character and kind of typifies the tricksterish nature of, of uh, the phenomena. Yeah, I mean, that's not unheard of, is it? I, I, I think... There are quite a few times when fictional characters will sort of pop up in real life. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, that's this is this is where where I I start to parse things out in a way that I assume would be maddening for your average <laughs> person to to have to listen to me ramble on about because we <laughs> we run into problems with definitions of terms when you talk about a fictional character popping up in real life. Um, then you have to define real life. You have to define what's real. You have to define what's fiction. Um, and so, I mean, I think of it in terms of something. This is a great analogy that that I think I think you'll be able to twig. And I don't know about your listeners necessarily, but in Doctor Who, right? You had the Weeping Angels. Mm-hmm. You're 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 a Whovian, aren't you? I, I yeah I, I like Doctor Who. Okay, so the Weeping Angels, um, a an image of an angel is itself an angel, right? Yeah, that's one of the things with the myth with with the um, with the background of these alien creatures, is that if you have an image of one, it that that thing becomes a weeping angel too. I think that with with the phenomena, when you're talking about uh, anything that is an idea like an image of it or even a suggestion of it or something with strains of it is itself that thing in a way. <laughs> so, so the idea of Bugs Bunny is, um, uh, is a very real thing. He exists in the imaginal space. Um, and, and in fact, when I was talking earlier about humor being a form of psychic armor, I distinctly remember being a school kid on the playground, watching kids get bullied and feeling like I needed to channel my inner Bugs Bunny to antagonize them. <laughs> you know, um, what would Bugs Bunny do in this situation? Um, 
he always he always harangues the bad guy but yeah i mean when you have these things existing in the imaginal space uh they 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 have an effect on the real world so what's to distinguish them from actual real beings yeah something along similar lines I can think of plenty of people who've cited characters from Star Trek, for example, that have inspired them to take on certain careers, especially in astronomy or or careers that are related to space exploration. Like Star Trek characters like Spock or Captain Kirk or Uhura, definitely. Uhura, especially, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely have a, a, an impact on on our world so they they definitely do have a form of agency here yeah and um it's funny you mentioned that because i think you'll appreciate this uh so many thoughts that i could go in different directions with but um what <laughs> uh, <laughs> i had somewhat recently appeared on um the six degrees of john keel podcast with barbara fisher talking of stories of when i was young and had um a, a lot of poltergeist phenomena going on in my house and uh one of the things that was happening was we were finding handwritten notes that were all balled up written from um something referring to itself as q uh-huh. and, uh, <laughs> and um it's something i've never really been able to figure out like the obvious explanation is it was my cousin or my brother messing with me and leaving these notes around but um there were certain things that didn't that didn't add up at the time for me and and my memory still don't um but barbara actually brought up q from star trek the next generation <laughs> and it had never really occurred to me but I, yeah i mean q is, has these weird godlike powers and he's a trickster character and um and it did seem like i was very much being messed with either on a real physical level as a youngster or or by some kind of entity so who's to say that q wasn't real you know yeah i mean it, you were at, at that time you were watching star trek next generation i guess i was yeah and it never occurred to me really to put those two together until barbara said it <laughs> and it never even occurred to me to think of it that way yeah and i mean it's it's a way for something to give you a clue as to what it's doing. I mean, it, it's helpful in a way that it, it called itself that. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, Q is probably one of the all time best characters on Star Trek too. Uh, endlessly entertaining, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think those are really helpful characters to look at too, is these trans-dimensional trickster characters in, in fiction um q is one of the best examples but you have them elsewhere like in a uh, dc comics you had um mr mixius pitalik he's yeah. like a little impish guy that would because um when you're fighting superman i mean he superman is pretty much undefeatable unless you have kryptonite or unless you can warp reality itself <laughs> um so so characters like that are interesting they're, they're just um and i i think i think that that they also kind of hold a piece of the puzzle 
when you start to consider those. Yeah, and they often take uh, the main character or a character who's a bit too serious. That they they challenge that person, don't they? I mean, Captain Picard is the exemplar of of, of being an incredible diplomat, but Q sort of challenges that. Q is the antithesis to what Captain Picard is sort of trained to deal with. He's he's a child basically, but a child with the godlike powers. Yeah, and I mean, uh, Picard's the only one equipped to deal with them adequately, I think, in a weird way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool. So um, a phrase that I've heard you say a couple of times on other podcasts is that uh, reality rhymes with itself. And can you just expand on that a little bit? Uh, I think it's a really sort of insightful way to look at things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, another way of saying that, uh, or a more specific example of that is saying like, uh, history repeats, right. But, um, when you talk about reality, it's kind of what I was saying with, with the essence of something or the image of something still being that thing. Um, you have, um, you have things that within 40 on like name games is a great example. Um, where you'll see the same names repeated over and over again and they there doesn't seem to be an obvious connection to them but um but they pop up a lot and and uh you know um a lot of similar things tend to happen and it kind of gives you this idea if you can zoom out a bit um that 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 reality isn't isn't so random as we think. That there is some kind of unifying principle and some connective thread, um, wh- whether that's through dreams or ideas or, or artistic expression or visions, or um, just happenstance and placement. It's it's almost like you can kind of you kind of see uh, you you can kind of see the framework of the stagecraft as the play is going on. <laughs> when you start to really examine uh, disparate details of things and try to connect the dots together. Um, how valuable that really is in a practical sense, I don't know. But uh, it, it's how I enjoy looking at things, especially anomalous phenomena, because, um, you, you know, the, the, the noumenon behind it, like the meaning behind these stories and the effects that they have, um are tantamount if not you know better than the 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 actual verifiable data that you have or the or the verifiable effects um you know you know i i used that line in a recent piece that i wrote about uh ostensibly about jack parsons because he's the most colorful character that's mentioned in it but um on my blog, I had one called uh, "Doomsday Predi- Doomsday Predictions Ain't Rocket Science," and um, it's really just struck by the fact that you know there's this place in my hometown where this guy sold ten acres of land, or bought ten acres of land and deeded it to God, and his name was Parsons. And it just there were a lot of these um, little little things that kind of gave me hints that there was a connection to Jack Parsons, but uh as silly as i can be i'm still 
I'm still, uh, I still try to be a little bit rational and skeptical about it and say, well, it is a very common name, but digging into it, you find that this guy actually was kind of, you know, he was, he was related. They short shared a common ancestor and, uh, not far away from this God's 10 acres area on the anniversary of what was supposed to be the end of the world, according to the Millerites, um, I think 40 something years later, uh, Robert Goddard as a child had a vision of ascending to space in a rocket while he was up in a tree, you know, and I'm talking about maybe a half mile from God's 10 acres. And of course, Jack Parsons is well known as a black magician slash rocket scientist. So (laughs) it's this weird circular logic kind of, or pretzel logic kind of idea of, um, the interconnectedness of all these things the the uh we can't necessarily say a vision is a real tangible thing but it it was a thing that happened to this kid up in a tree on the anniversary of a day when a lot of people were climbing up in trees waiting to ascend to heaven you know uh, on, on the on the verge of doomsday and um to have that all interconnected and relate to a man who further down the road from that would build off of the young boys work in rocketry to um to design the types of rocket fuel that allowed us to eventually get to space just kind of shows this connective thread that um that it's reality rhyming with itself to achieve a means to an end what started as the idea of being ascending to the heavens uh the vision of a rocket reaching the heavens and event eventually that that vision um manifesting itself it's it's all pretty wild and it's hard to explain um which is why i like to write because <laughs> you can you, you can frame this better and 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 put it in front of people better in the form of writing um and even then it's very difficult but uh, i hope that answers your question i hope i didn't just you know <laughs> no no absolutely it, it, it makes me think of how sometimes and I, I know I'm definitely guilty of this is that when you become interested in a mystery like you you'll try and solve it and there'll be a point at which you sort of delve down and down in into the mystery and you'll get to a point where you think you've cracked it you found the answer that or you found a, a an answer that's that's meaningful for you but then almost immediately you you have a moment of realization go well wait a minute what about this and then it all falls down like a house of cards and what i've learned is sort of to not do that try or try not to do that as much and look for more basic things but more not not the finer detail but the grander ideas that that connect that appear in the in the mystery what the the mystery presents in itself the 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 key um patterns of things within a within it within a story yeah absolutely i mean it's it's sort of um thinking about the implications and ramifications of things more than the things themselves <laughs> in a way right yeah uh, yeah i've started i've started to think of this in terms of uh using ufos as as the main example it'll be easier to illustrate, but I've started thinking of it as a form of initiation into kind of a mystery school. So you could think of 
ufology itself as a um uh, as as like an occult uh society <laughs> um or 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 an occult exploration so that once you start looking into it there's this repetitive cycle of exactly what you just explained where you have a mystery and you think you have a pretty good idea of what it is and um you're going to have it solved within a couple months of looking into it and then years later you're still looking into it and in the meantime you've had your pet theory and you've uh, cherished it and nurtured it and built it up and then had it all fall apart because of one fact that didn't align or you started following somebody that seemed like they had the answers and then all of a sudden they're proven to be a charlatan for whatever reason or they're a fraud or uh, something causes you to realize that they don't have the answers that they said they did it's this repeated cycle of of um enchantment and discovery and disillusionment that happens over and over again that kind of breaks you down and forms you into um somebody that's a little more okay with um understanding that the unexplained is there to inspire you to to keep looking you know it's not necessarily there to be solved um and that's kind of where I'm at now is a sim similar to what you were talking about is uh, where, where you said that you're at. And I'm not saying where I'm at is the pinnacle of uh, ufological enlightenment, but <laughs> not suggesting that I think I have a ways to go yet. Um, but uh, what I see and I can see it happening in real time and it's almost painful to watch on, on Twitter is people going through that cycle and it's, it, it can be, it can be really rough. For people there's an investment in um proving this or that or um siding with one camp or the other camp and um continually being disappointed until until, until you realize that the answers you're seeking are are you know to be found within perhaps <laughs> yeah you you write about it being exhausting i i'm glad that i'm not um in in that in that frame of mind uh, anymore at least to continually focus on something and finding proof for something it is interesting you mentioned there uh, mystery schools i was reading about um the Elysian mysteries yeah um and apparently the one of the first roads in ancient greece was built between athens and Elysenius where where they happened and it just made me think about how there's so much um law connected to roads and especially ghosts and you know phantom hitchhikers all sorts of stuff um I just found it interesting that connection between like the first road in in ancient Greece was between Athens and this place where you would travel to undertake those mysteries but the the road itself is something that now is part of our paranormal law there's every so many cultures have this these sort of stories connected to, to roads and it's just an interesting connection between the things that humans build and the paranormal world i guess is what i'm trying to say <laughs> well that's a really great metaphor too because um 
you know, it's become a bit cliche, but the idea that the journey is more important than the destination, um, that's where you're doing all your learning and that's where you're figuring things out. So the road itself being the kind of that liminal space um, that that leads you to the destination, uh, the destination is less important at that point or it may not exist at all. You know, it may always just be the road. <laughs> uh it's pretty interesting the stuff to consider really um uh i mean also where we talk about um the chapel perilous idea that robert anton wilson talked about in uh, books like cosmic trigger um he came to develop this uh way of looking at things that involved what he called reality tunnels where you can um, uh, glom onto an idea, you can you, you can wholeheartedly dive in and be all in with one theory or one perspective, and then um, but have one foot out the door the whole time, right? So so you follow it to its most logical extreme, and then and, and but but at the end of the day, you're ending up back where you were, looking at it from an outsider perspective. Hmm. And it's kind of a really healthy way to approach it. Yeah, I, I really like that Chapel Perilous concept. It's it's a helpful metaphor. Yeah, yeah, and I mean it can be uh, can be disconcerting for people for sure, um, but um, that's why. I mean, I came to this idea reading um, Susan Demeter's book, The Cosmic Witch. She talks about. Um, having close encounters with ufos as being an initiatory event and um as, as an initiation on her part uh, for her own personal experience and um and that's kind of what got me thinking about ufology generally as being kind of a uh as as kind of an initiation into into some form of of uh of occult seeking you know and in that respect all of us and every, everyone involved in the process of, of figuring it out or experiencing it or looking at it and even debunking it, like it all becomes part of one unified whole that is ufology, you know? So, um, so in that sense, all of us contributing to it are the UFO. Um, and it's a it's a pretty fun kind of occult idea that I was I was thinking of with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I one thing I do wonder about is we've had the contactee era of ufology and and the abductee era following that, and I'm I'm just wondering what what era are we in now? I find it hard to to really know. It's a lot of the, a lot of the news stories that come out about the subject a lot of the recent cases very much seem to be about the the materialistic aspects of the subject rather than the people that encounter them i mean i i'm i'm not sure if i'm maybe not researching as much as i should but it, it feels like there's less sort of dramatic cases or there hasn't been a sort of a like a whitley streber kind of event communion seemed to be a big sort of event in terms of the abductee phenomenon. I mean, Betty and Barney Hill happened a long time before that, but his experiences really seemed to 
reflect the abductee experience in the microcosm. I'm just wonder, I'm just wondering what the next thing is that ufology will sort of um, what its next era will be. Yeah, I don't know, but I hope I hope it's much weirder, <laughs> and I suspect it will be. Um, I think it's kind of a, a pendulum swing, you know, where um, the stories get wilder and then they get tamer or more hidden, you know, and materialistic. And I think it's about time for the pendulum to swing the other way and become a little bit more uh, esoteric and wild and weird. And I'm kind of hoping it does just that. Um, what I would love is for like a really good flying saucer landing somewhere you know like where there's documented evidence of it or something like that you know some wild story like that and bring back flying saucers is kind of what i would like to see <laughs> yeah that's i'd love that too it's it would be great to have that that sort of story again that initial encounter kenneth arnold had in 1947 seemed to just birth so much strangeness just with Kenneth Arnold himself, his t- his life after that sighting, some very odd stuff happened to him. Right, Men in Black, um, lots of stuff, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, part of me would love nothing more than for the government to actually have some form of disclosure. But what they come out with is like, okay, um, Orthon was a real dude from Venus. We know about him. We have a file on him. <laughs> Valiant Thor. Here's all the records on Valiant Thor. All of that was real. Um, like all the wackiest stuff that's ever come out of ufology. If the government just kind of caved and was like, okay, here it is. <laughs> and all of that stuff was verified to be true. Can you imagine? <laughs> that would be amazing. I, I would absolutely love that. Yes, we know about the aliens that make pancakes for people. They come to the White House regularly. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you'd hope it would be, definitely. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to have aliens around, I I would hope that they can make you pancakes. If they can travel to Earth, then you would imagine that they could. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. Well, AP, this has been a really, really fun chat. Thank you so much for coming back and being on the podcast. Of course, Rick, anytime. I always I always enjoy coming and talking to you and I always enjoy listening to your show. You always ask great questions and it's 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 uh once again, congratulations on over a hundred episodes now. You're far too kind, sir. If people want to find out more about yourself and your brilliant blog, how do they do that? Well, you can go to www.apstrange.com. Um, and you'll find a lot of the stuff I was talking about on there. Um, you can also go to um, my Twitter. My Twitter is up there. Uh, I have a list where I, I keep all my podcast appearances on there, so you can look through and see what's on there. Um, oh, no, that's on the blog, not on my Twitter, rather. But um, And just now, just before we started recording, I slapped together a little ebook. So I'm going to try to put links to that as well on my blog. Um, it's just a little thing I put together and hope that people will enjoy. But um, uh, yeah, so be on the lookout for that. Excellent. Yeah, I'll put all that info in the show notes. Okay, great.
Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to my conversation with AP. As he mentioned in the interview, he has recently brought out a small collection of writings and art called Strange Words for a Weird World. Topics covered include alternate timelines, psychic horses, space brothers, and spontaneous combustion, so definitely get hold of a copy if you're able. Please also consider rating this episode wherever you listen and sharing it on social media, as it really helps Some Other Sphere to grow and find new listeners. You can follow Some Other Sphere on Twitter and Mastodon, and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can also support the upkeep of the podcast with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, take care of yourselves, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.